0: Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm Madamita Mergia, European Technology Correspondent at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Nigel Shadbolt, co-founder of the Open Data Institute, about the tensions between the personal and private ownership of data. This week, Our guest is a pioneer of the computer software industry and one of the first female tech entrepreneurs.
1: I was working in the computer industry and enjoying it, but came across the glass ceiling. Mm. And even with good modern companies, I felt blocked. And I felt I've worked in the public sector, I've worked in the private sector, and both times, you know, you have this sexist environment. And so I'm going to build up my own company that is really family-friendly, that is not going to have any of this glass ceiling anymore.
0: The voice of Dame Stephanie Shirley, who founded Freelance Programmers in the early 1960s, staffed almost entirely by women. Since retiring from the business, she has devoted her life to philanthropy and charitable work, particularly in the field of autism research. She came into the FT and talked to me about her extraordinary life, which began with a harrowing journey as a child refugee from Nazi Germany.
1: When I was asked for my date of birth as a teenager, I actually made a mistake and assumed that I had been born in 1939. And that's the psychology of having arrived in this country as a refugee from Nazi Germany. My father was Jewish and pretty well shortly after my birth, you know, it was not a good time to be Jewish in Germany and the bad times began and we moved around trying to find a safe place. And I was very lucky. My parents arranged for me to be put on a transport, a mass movement of children, the largest ever migration of children, who came 10,000 of us aged up to the age of 16 in 1939 and were absorbed and assimilated with very little difficulty.
0: And you went to live with a family, where were they?
1: They were in Sutton Coldfield, in Staffordshire, an unlikely couple to adopt, especially a Jewish child. I was five years old. I was clutching the hand of my nine-year-old sister It was quite traumatic, two-and-a-half-day journey from Vienna to Liverpool Street Station in London. I was reunited with my birth parents after the war, though, sadly, I never really bonded with them again. So I'm really the child of my foster parents in all but birth. It is a mystery as to how I came to be studying maths, because how come that I found it enjoyable so early in my life? I started off my education in a Roman Catholic convent school, where they had nuns in habits, black and white habits, were teaching us. And they were sufficiently professional to say to my foster parents, this child is gifted in mathematics and we can't teach her anymore. And so I changed schools once for that and then a little bit later on the only science thought respectable for a girl to be studying was botany and I really had to fight to be taught mathematics and finished up studying mathematics at the boys school.
0: So you were the only girl in this boys school? Oh yes (laughs) I would just walk
1: in for the maths lessons.
0: Were your foster parents very supportive of this?
1: Yes, they weren't academic themselves, but they were very supportive. And what greater gift can you give to a child than sort of unconditional love? And if their darling foster child wanted to study mathematics, that's what they were going to do. (laughs) I always desperately wanted to study mathematics and contribute to mathematics. I was going to solve something called Fermat's Last Theorem, Mm. which took 40 years to solve, and it wasn't me that did it. (laughs) And I was lucky, in a sense, in that once I realized that I didn't have it in me to do something really in the maths field, The computer industry started and... And when
0: was this? What year?
1: Oh, we're talking about the mid-50s. And in the early days, you needed mathematics to work on computers. And I just fell in love, Madhu, with computers. It was just such fun. I couldn't believe that I should be paid so well for doing something that I enjoyed so much.
0: So how did you actually come across computers? What state were they in in the 50s?
1: Basically, they weren't there you had to go and find a computer in a bureau and use it for a few minutes at a time because they were very expensive and the whole time scale of computing then was quite different you would write programs with paper and pencil developing flow charts defining the job to be done and then you would have that punched and then you would have that verified and then you would submit it to the computer and twice a week on average, you would access what they called a supercomputer, which probably had the power of my Apple Watch.
0: When did you think about starting your own
1: company? I was working in the computer industry and enjoying it, but came across the glass ceiling. Mm. And even with good modern companies, I felt blocked. And I felt I've worked in the public sector, I've worked in the private sector. And both times, you know, you have this sexist environment And so I'm going to build up my own company that is really family friendly, that is not going to have any of this glass ceiling anymore. And that's precisely what I did. I set up a software house and people laughed at me because software at that time was given away free with the hardware and nobody would buy software, certainly not from a woman. And at the same time, they laughed at me because it was a woman's company. The first 300 staff, we finished up 8,500, were only three men. And it was very much a crusade for women that we should be accepted as equal professionals.
0: You say this glass ceiling, what actually did that mean in practice? It was much more black
1: and white in those days. There were certain things that women couldn't do I was working on transatlantic telephone cables, and the job really required that I should go on a cable ship. Mm. They didn't have women on ships. And there was generally a sort of keep out, you know, thou shalt not. And uh, all that has gone. Which means that you have different problems because it's a very covert sexism now. Yeah,
0: it's, it's much more subtle, isn't yeah, it? It's much more subtle it's and much more difficult to, to deal with. Yeah, because people that tell you it's in your head or yes. doesn't yes. exist at all. So I guess yeah. for you, the rules were kind of. More... It was black and white. So tell me about your company. What was it called? When was it founded? It was called Freelance
1: Programmers, which was exactly what it was and did. It was started in 1962, which was incredibly early in the field. And what it did was write like, tailor-made software. The market was very much a commercial market, whereas I was a scientist. And I made a happy compromise with some operational research work. So we did a lot of stock control. We wrote software for the black box flight recorder for supersonic Concorde. We wrote software for fluid flow in pipes, you know, sort of very boring things like that absolutely fascinating (laughs) for the (laughs) right person for me yes (laughs) and I gradually became more and more interested in what the technology could do rather than what it was you know you always felt you could do better you could do it differently I wanted to try this again in a different way.
0: What about being an entrepreneur? Today it's quite fashionable for young people graduates to come out and just start their own companies but you were doing it at a time when probably it wasn't that easy or fashionable. How hard was that? When somebody
1: first called me an entrepreneur, I didn't know what the word meant. So it was certainly not very fashionable. Most people thought in a corporate way and was disappointed that I didn't have a real job. And of course, as an entrepreneur, it was a couple of years before I drew expenses for my traveling and what I was doing, three or four years before I drew a salary in a very low one. And in fact, people assumed the highest earning was me, but it wasn't <laughs> ever. And, you know, for a long, long time, I had to create an organization from nothing. And that's what entrepreneurs do. And I love it. Nobody told me what to do. Nobody told me what not to do. And so I just went ahead and did it.
0: You had to give yourself a new name to do it, didn't you?
1: Yes. With this double feminine of Stephanie and Shirley being my marital name, I really wasn't getting anywhere. And my husband suggested that I change my name for business purposes to Steve Shirley. And I did. And it seemed And I've been Steve ever since, really.
0: So that's how you got your foot in the door. You just Absolutely. addressed to people as, yeah. as Steve.
1: I think also the confidence that I have now means that I get better responses each and every time. Was When I started, it was, am I good enough for this? Could I do this? And I can remember a consultant saying to me, what's the worst that can happen was I was panicking because I'd got a customer complaint or something, and you remember those <laughs> sort of heavy things.
0: How many women were part of your company? You said you ended up with eight and a half thousand.
1: Yeah, by that time we were highly respectable and male and female, which was quite an effort to get there. I headed it until it was about a thousand strong, then we got professional managers in, and by that time it was probably 80 percent female. Because once you get the culture, and what does the culture mean? It's not just our gender, it's because we work in teams, we work in a sort of family-friendly way.
0: What does family-friendly entail?
1: Probably just flexibility. When you ask women in particular what it is that we want from our employer, two things always come towards the top of the list, and that is flexibility and family-friendly. And in my case, the whole company was based on women working from home which meant that it was women with young children and uh, everybody laughed because you can't do that. But it worked very well and we finished up highly successful and pretty well like any other corporate.
0: And also you ended up making lots of millionaires out of your employees, didn't you? Yes,
1: we shared the company and 70 of the
0: staff became millionaires in their own And I'm very proud of that. Tell me about the biggest achievements that you think you've had over your career. I think they are managerial
1: to move work out of the 9 to 5 culture in the office where you're paid for presence into something that is flexible and is remunerated by work achieved. And that was quite a big change and is still not complete. Distributed working, flexible working, part-time working, summertime working, all these different ways of contributing to a commercial enterprise, basically, I think I introduced, certainly in this country, I thought that Freelance Programmers was the very first company to work in this way ever. And I was quite annoyed when I discovered an American company that worked in much the same way with a lot of women, with children working from home.
0: What about you? What were the big obstacles? Because like many things, it must have been a very male-dominated area.
1: I think the lack of understanding that there were different styles of management. You don't have to be sort of command and control, do this, jump. But women, we manage in a different way, we work together in a different way, and we get equal results, I would say sometimes rather better results, because we go for the softer issues of management. And that was when all sorts of things from the way a male leader stands in the room is quite different to how you or I would stand. The way in which we speak is quite different. And although you can emulate some of the male ways of doing things, it's not natural. You know, now we talk about diversity. I work with a whole lot of autistic people and we're trying to get them into work as a way of getting a real diversity of thinking. I mean, I'm 83. I don't know how young you are, but that is, again, a different sort of diversity. So you've got gender, culture, Age, religion. It's interesting.
0: So after all the hard work that you did, are you disappointed with how far we have managed to come in the years since you were working?
1: I am bitterly disappointed. I really thought after 50-odd years that life would be equalised between men and women, and that is not the case, and that is a bitter disappointment. And you sort of think, is it what women do? Is it what men do? And I think it's a bit of each. Mm. I do believe that women, they're often not prepared to pay the cost of success, whether it be technical or managerial, and there is a cost, and I must say I've paid it.
0: What was the cost for you?
1: Oh, in family life and in all the sorts of things I haven't been able to do, theatre, dinner parties, the sort of things one normally considers to be a social life. And uh, when people talk to me about work-life balance, I just know I didn't have any. But I have been very so-called successful. And uh, that's in financial terms, but also intellectually. I feel so lucky to have something to get up for every morning. I'm doing things. I've got projects, projects
0: to finish, projects to start. Are there any areas where you feel hopeful, where women have progressed?
1: Well, there are parts of the world where the culture is easier and women have progressed, certainly women in science. Some of the Eastern European countries coming out of communism relatively recently, they are doing rather well for women. Some of the developing countries, the newly emerging nations, are also doing well. And if you look at China and India, then the gender issue is so immaterial. So one has to look at it in world terms, not just how is it for me, how is it for my local sisters.
0: What about technology itself? What's for you been the most surprising transformation? I think 90%
1: of the changes that have taken place in technology have taken place in the last 20 years. It is enormous. The obvious changes are things like cost, which has come down, size, which has become miniaturised. I was with, recently, a, a the 65-year anniversary of a first business computer called Leo. And there it had 7,000 valves. You could warm your hands on this machine. It was, you know, 30 foot of racks of equipment. Very, very different. And the expectation as to what we wanted from the technology was very different. I can remember being asked if my company could write software to recognise fingerprints and this was in the early 60s and I was desperate for the work because we were just starting up in those days and thought about it for two or three days and had to go back to the prospective client and say I'm sorry I don't think we can do this. Now today in one of my charities I have got People with learning disability and autism using their own fingerprints to open the doors of their bedrooms. It's actually recognised and being used as a security issue. In the 50s, I was using robots in factory work on a production line, I suppose it would be. Then, 1982 was the International Year of Disabled People and I was using high technology to recognize speech, to synthesize speech and things like that. Now I'm using a robot to teach autistic children. It's moved into a whole different area. Couldn't be more exciting. I don't know whether young people, whether you feel threatened that your job will eventually disappear and you will have to be doing something completely different.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess it it happens at every stage. Precisely.
1: This is about the fourth time we've had an industrial evolution like this. People are always worried and one has to be very careful how you make things happen, how you drive it. Because it will be
0: difficult and different. Do you think that this is going in a positive direction or are you worried about where we're headed? I'm really a glass half full sort of
1: person. I know it'll be difficult. I think it's very exciting that some of these jobs are going because they're being replaced by new jobs, more creative jobs, and jobs that are available to each and every one of us, whether we're disabled or whether we're autistic or old, young, wherever. I think there's an enormous opportunity and you can see that from the productivity figures worldwide where countries that have automated continuously are really getting much better performance than we are, sadly, in the UK.
0: We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week when our guest will be Kevin Mandia. He founded Mandiant, a cybersecurity company that came to prominence in 2013 when it released a report directly implicating China in cyber espionage. He sold the company for more than $1 billion and now runs FireEye, the security company that bought it. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.